Hello and welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with amazing individuals from all around the world and look for ways to create a clean, green and sustainable future for us, the planet and all beings. I'm your host, Tom Simak, an athlete and fellow plant eater who strives to optimize every living ecosystem passionate about looking after this beautiful floating rock we call home and all the lovely creatures that dwell among it. Just before we get into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to every single one of you who leave a review, whether that's on Apple iTunes or Spotify or even leave comments and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I really appreciate it. I see and read every single one of you. If you haven't had the chance to leave a review just yet, The link to do so is in the show notes and I muchly appreciate it. And for those who haven't heard of or don't know yet, we do have a monthly mailing list. Just head over to theplantparadigm.com and sign up to the newsletter there. Now on to today's guest, Aaron Sharoni. Aaron is a prime example of a 21st century jack of all trades. Notice the change in theme music. Yeah, that's one of Erin's tracks through her second life as a DJ known as Yale. She was a TV host for CBS and NBC for a few years, is a chief product officer at Foxo Technologies, has a master's in biology from Harvard Medical School, where she received the Dean's List Academic Achievement Award. On the plant side of things, she's on the advisory board of Animal Save Movement and a volunteer at her local Humane Society shelter. That's about half of the things that Erin does. I won't even touch on her work as a whole in the music industry or her sports career. So as you can imagine, our conversation today is very, very widespread and covers a lot of bases, including longevity, activism, building muscle, and science at large, including a paper that she's published in in the past. I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I did and I'll see you on the other side. Erin, welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast. How are you going? Great. Thanks so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. Um, look, when I came across you and I was doing my research, you're actually one of the hardest guests to do a bio for because I felt like you were just <laughs> everywhere. I'm like, you're going to take up like six minutes of the intro. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> no, you like it confuses me because you've done so much. It's really incredible. And I'm looking at like your background. So you've got like this master's in biology and you've got this whole sciencey background. So when I'm looking at right, this girl, she's vegan and she's science and all, all these things. I'm like, and I always find it fascinating whether someone kind of connects to the whole, well, we talk about veganism a lot on the show, whether someone connects to it based on like the health aspect, the environmental, and you've got these different pillars Given your scientific background, was it the health aspect that really connected with you? You know, that's how I started when I, I, I say that I was plant-based and then, and then I was vegan and I, I qualify those as two different things, which I'm sure you understand and probably most of your listeners understand, but for anyone maybe who doesn't quite uh, get that, I, I started go, I started with the plant-based um I would say diet, not even lifestyle, just diet, because I was really sick. Um, and I was like one of those people who, you know, like many women, uh, their condition was undiagnosed. Uh, I 
couldn't figure out how to get better. I was really frustrated. I always sort of had this background in health and wellness and fitness. At that time, I did not yet have uh, a master's um, in biology, um, but I knew enough to, to do some reading. And so it was recommended to me by a naturopath, um, hey, why don't you do a raw food vegan diet, which I would actually not recommend to anyone subsequently. Um, but what I took away from that, even though the raw food thing was hard and didn't, didn't do all that much for me, um, was that cutting out dairy completely and then reducing, you know, my, my meat. And I mean, actually I pretty much eliminated my meat and poultry consumption. I was eating fish, eggs, and occasionally I would eat, um, non-cow dairy. And so that's what I did for about 10 years. Um, and then, I became vegan for ethical reasons. Um, so part of it was informed by, yeah, being a scientist, if you know how to read studies, the environmental uh, effects are pretty alarming. And mm. so I was like, all right, well, I see what I've got to do here, but actually I watched Dominion, which yeah. takes place in your great country. <laughs> um, and so obviously <laughs> that happens everywhere, right? It's just as bad in the United States. And when I watched that, I was like, I, I can't continue this way. Um, that, so that's what got me. And, and then it made it very easy, um, you know, to just give up everything and say, this is, I want to align my lifestyle and my choices with my heart. And, and actually my, my body improved, my, my cognition improved. I felt like everything improved. Um, yeah. yeah. It's so fascinating how like our psyche kind of, we don't know, like it might be more spiritual than that. Like people say, like you eat, your body's a, a garden, not a graveyard. So is it like the spirituality of like not contributing to that and not consuming that flesh? Or is it, you know, knowing that, hey, I'm doing better for the planet. And so your mental health is like, no, I'm, I'm a good person. And it's really, it's really hard to kind of tell. But I want to circle back to the raw thing for a second. What is it about, because I've tried raw or like you know even the raw till four and those kinds of things what is it about raw that you didn't like so i guess i should amend my statement and i i know i made it sort of jokingly so if people are listening and can't see me and my hand gestures and laughing um, then they might get the wrong impression so for anyone who's not viewing this visually uh, i should clarify and say there's nothing wrong with um a raw food vegan diet it just didn't work uh, for me i had really bad ibs I had a lot of digestive issues. Um, and so I actually had a uh, um, traditional Chinese medicine practitioner um, and in traditional Chinese medicine, when you do have uh, gastric distress, one of the things you're not supposed to do is eat cold foods or raw foods. Um, and so that practitioner was you know, telling me mm -mm, the reason that you're not feeling great is because of this. And they have their own school of thought and explanation. Um, you know, what the mechanism is, I don't know. I do think that uncooked roughage is more difficult to digest. I mean, that actually is true, mm. uh, especially if you hadn't been eating uh, a largely plant-based diet previously. So I think the issue for me was going from zero to a hundred and also just like any diet or any version, uh, any variation of veganism, you know, different bodies require different inputs. And so for me, that was not the ideal input. Um, I also did not enjoy it, but I know plenty of people who do. So I don't want to put anyone off it. I just want to say that um, I think sometimes it's recommended medicinally, particularly to people who are not vegan. And so imagine you've been consuming animal products your whole life, even though I was fairly healthy. My parents were hippies, right? They fed me carob when in the 1980s before Whole Foods existed. So I was kind of in that, that sort of world, but, um, you know, but I, but I ate animal products. So my body went from one extreme to the other and it reacted really poorly. That said, I did see some 
benefits and I started cooking my vegetables and was like, huh, I feel much better. I mean, just the elimination of dairy alone for me, that was one of the biggest things. Um, so I always tell people, look, even if you're not ready to go completely plant-based or vegan or whatever your reasoning is, just stop with the dairy and I promise you, you'll feel better. Mm. Um, yeah, I agree. It, it's dairy's the worst one because it's like the hardest one, I guess, for a lot of people and it's like the most impactful. But on, yeah. on the raw thing, I, I assume it's something to do with the starches not breaking down when you not cook it and, and yep. kind of like going on what you mentioned. So it's it's mm -hmm. fascinating. And of course, once you go from meat to then all of a sudden you're having this huge amount of fiber if you're going from meat to raw, which is That's everything right. you're consuming has fiber content and you're gastrointestinal bacteria aren't prepped for that. So it's, it's never right. going to bode well. But yeah, I think that's a good clarification because I, I think in a wide variety rainbow diet, some of your foods should be raw and that could be fruit, for sure, you know, and that could be some big, sure. like cutting up raw tomatoes or whatever that is. Um, I think yeah. it's always good, obviously. And, and having done more research now, I'm sure you would agree. Yeah, it is good to have a varied rainbow diet of raw rainbow. that's a very that's a very good clarification and yeah I'm, I'm speaking about you know me coming at this 12 11 12 years ago when you know i didn't i didn't like most people i didn't have the education and i, I was i was going off of you know stuff i'd read on the internet or maybe a podcast or two or what what some naturopath told me and so i really wasn't sure and that's the experience that a lot of people have when they're trying to make better choices for for their bodies which is why i'm so glad there's people like you putting this kind of information out there, because unfortunately, I think what happens is people are really well intentioned. Most people mm. want to live in, you know, an intentional uh, way, and they want to live ethically, and they want to heal their bodies. And then when they explore avenues to do that, they get all this different information, some of which is, is great, and some of which is not backed by peer reviewed science. Um, and unfortunately, it gets delivered. Uh, much in the same way. And, and so people have the best intentions, right, to heal themselves or to eat an, uh, what they think is an ideal diet. Um, and then they've got individuals who I will not name on this podcast going around very loudly telling them, no, you should only eat meat. <laughs> so. we've, we've named them before. Don't worry. We're over 100 <laughs> episodes in. We've named them all at this stage. Um, no, I I find that point really fascinating. Recently, like we talk about all the different, like you're an activist, obviously at heart, and we'll talk about all the different things you do a bit later on. But I always talk about how there's there's a hundred ways to be an activist. And recently, I've been trying something very, very sneaky. Um, there's a lot of these these, and I'm using the quotes, naturopaths and wellness experts, and a lot of, and a lot of them are, I think, well-meaning. I think like 99%, like you said, are well-meaning. There's that one percent who happen to have a large platform and audience and whatever it may be, because everyone loves to hear good things about their bad habits. Um, and all I do, because I see it shared on these naturopathic websites, like I saw one the other day, like, ghee is good, and, and all fat butter, and all these things. And, and I see that posted on their website, and everyone's commenting, like, yeah, I love my ghee, and blah, blah, blah. And all I do <laughs> is I just comment, hey, do you have any peer-reviewed science that actually says this is actually the fact? And right. while... And they never, I've actually commented like 15 times now. I've only tried this recently. I've never had a response yet. But the point to commenting that is I hope someone else reads that and be like, wait a second, there's no reference here. They're just posting this fancy infographic they put up on, they made on Canva and they think they're professionals. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting that we should be, or not interesting, but 
I think it's good that we question everything in in kind of the modern society age. Absolutely. I mean, that's it's the access to information is the double edged sword, right? You have this abundant access and this vast amount of information. But then the flip side to that is that it's very hard for most people to parse out what's true and, and what's not. And and I actually think that the, the individuals seeking the information are generally well-intentioned and the individuals purveying the information are generally well-intentioned. Even the people who I really disagree with, um, with the exception of a few who really should know better, um, who I think should have their medical licenses revoked, but that's another conversation. <laughs> but, you know, most of them, I think, do mean well. They think that they're giving, you know, solid advice. Um, but with stuff like promotion of, you know, eating vast quantities of ghee, for instance, my dad was in that camp. So my dad doesn't really eat very, very many animal products at all. Mm. But he had this ghee problem. And so he, I, I think at one point, some naturopath told him, oh, if you want to heal the um, skin on your legs, you need to eat ghee. I, I think that's what, what what happens. He went down this path <laughs> and he was like making his own ghee. And there was like these, he, if he listens to this, he's going to laugh. There was like, he had this special setup on his stove to sort of clarify the butter. And I was like, what are you doing? And he was having all these back problems. And, um, you know, but I, I, I think part of it now he, he no longer consumes it and his back got better. And I told him it's because he stopped clogging, you know, the major mm. <laughs> artery that that, uh, that is affected by those things. Um, and he said, no, no, I think it was some other stuff. But regardless, I think a lot of times it's confirmation of the positive. Right. So people want to believe that consuming meat and dairy in vast quantities is OK for them because it tastes good to most people and because that's what they've they're used to, right? So it's, mm. you're indoctrinated into this culture from the minute you're born, because we live in a carnist society. And then most folks are addicted to these foods. And so if they come across some school of thought that tells them, oh, actually, this stuff is really good for you, then they're going to go, cool, I'm going to subscribe to that school of thought, because it's easier. And the brain doesn't like to make change. So I, I think that's part of it as well. It's confirmation bias. Mm. Our brain is... Yeah, that's right. And our brain is so is so funny like that. The confirmation bias is really, well, to use your words again, it's a double-edged sword. It really is because it, it takes, uh, I think, a dissection of ego in a certain light to to kind of admit that you're wrong. Or especially if you look at most people who eat, let's say, eat, eat meat in abundance and potentially even they believe this is the healthier choice. And a lot of people would have been doing that for 15, 20, 25, 30 years or more. Imagine admitting or what it takes to admit that, wait a second, what I've been doing for X amount of years has been wrong. Like that is incredibly right. difficult. It's also why I think when people are confronted with the visual and auditory uh, realities of, you know, what you see in Dominion or Earthlings mm. or, you know, I'm on the board of Animal Safe Movement, any of the videos that we post, right? There are tons, ton, there's tons of that content. I think that people, um, people either go one of two ways, right? They're, most folks are, are shocked and don't want to look at it. So they look away. But, but I think you can either lean into it and say, oh my God, this is horrific. I never want to be a part of this. I don't want to contribute to the suffering. And then you sort of sit there and feel bad about all the suffering that you did contribute to previously. But if you're lucky, you kind of get past that and you find a community and you kind of process it. And then there's the, there's the flip side, which I also understand, which is people being um, very resistant to it because it would require them to acknowledge that they were willing participants in this horror show, right? And and no one is, or at least I shouldn't say no one, but I am certainly not judging anyone for 
the choices they make in a society that condones those choices, that that's normalized. That's how, what we grow up with. Um, so when people are like, oh, what's, do you have any regrets about going vegan? I always say, yeah, that I didn't do it sooner, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't beat yourself up over the choices you made previously. I mean, sometimes I still make mistakes where I don't realize something mm-hmm. I've consumed may have had an animal product. What am I going to do? Be, be upset about it and, you know, let it distract me for a week? No. So I think you have to acknowledge that we're all part of this system. And, and the best thing you can do is work to change the system rather than berate yourself or feel really bad for for your participation in it because nobody's perfect you know no that's, that's right that, that's why like the saying that proliferates my mind is you know we don't need a few perfect vegans we need a lot of imperfect people making ethical exactly. choices yeah exactly yeah so um, on the on the back of all this, given given your background and your experience, how would you kind of break down whether you're talking to a fellow plant based eater or someone who's potentially plant curious, how a plant based diet or lifestyle actually affects the body? Mm. Well, I would I would tell them to go to PubMed and start searching for <laughs> plant based longevity and take yeah. a look at all the meta analyses. Um, there's a couple of good ones. I actually didn't pull them up before the show, but I'm sure your listeners are savvy enough uh, to, mm. to check it out. But there's a few um, that came out within the past two years. Uh, one very good one um, out of Harvard. I think it was the end of 2020. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, the, the evidence is really quite clear. Um, and even, you know, very well-known longevity scientists like David Sinclair, who's on the board of my former company where I worked for six years, um, he's gone now on Joe Rogan a few times and said, yep, Joe, sorry to break to you, but I'm 90% plant-based now. This is what you got to eat if you want to live long. Like, you know, these are, this is a prolific scientist. These are people who, this is, that's what they do for a living is they evaluate this information, right? So it's very hard to argue, I think, with individuals who, who live and breathe academia and who are able to um, evaluate the, the available peer-reviewed literature accordingly. And that, that's where it meets out. And so um, I think increasingly people are interested in health span and lifespan. And when they ask me about that, because I, in my day job, I work it with longevity, right? Um, the first thing I tell them they can do to make a difference three times a day um, is, is switch to a predominantly plant-based diet. So I'm of the opinion that like whatever gets people to make that choice is great. I don't care if it's rational or not. If you just care about the environment, I met this one guy who told me, well, I don't really, you know, I saw Dominion didn't phase me. And I was like, huh? Uh, and he said, you know, but, but I love trail running and, um, and, you know, what we're doing to the environment is terrible. So I, I, I want to protect, you know, mm. the, the mountains and the streams and all these things I see when I'm on my trail runs. And, and to me personally, I sort of was like, wow, really? That's what resonates? Like, of course, I want to protect those things too. But, but seeing the horror of how animals mm. are treated to me, it's like by far and away the worst. However, I keep coming across more and more people who that just doesn't do it for them. You know, and the health thing doesn't really do it for them and the environment does or the health thing does it for them and they don't care about the environment. And I'm just kind of like, look, the animals don't care why you become vegan. So just do it, you know? Mm. So I guess to answer your question, that was circuitous, but I guess that's to say, I, I try and poke around to find first what people care about and then lead them there that way. Um, because what motivates me or, or you may not motivate um, everybody else. And like you said, we're, we're trying to get to a world of imperfect vegans, right? That's what we need. So um, I think being very careful about not making people feel bad, not pushing them away or, or shutting them down um, 
letting them ask questions and maybe even letting them try and poke holes like Earthling Ed does the best job of that ever, mm -hmm. right? And, and he, you can see that he's fairly successful when he does break through to someone. So that's sort of my approach. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you mentioned longevity. It's something that you're definitely passionate about and super informed on. In in my understanding, look, I, I've read um, David's book and, and, and all these things and look at longevity studies. When we're looking at the plant-based diet, we know, and we've spoken on this show a lot about how it re reduces chronic illnesses such as heart disease, mm -hmm. which is our number one killer. Is that where the foundation is on how a plant-based diet affects longevity or that are there other pillars and avenues that it kind of affects? So I'm not sure that the mechanistic um, workings have been specifically defined in terms of eating a predominantly whole, we should say whole food plant-based yep. diet, because it's not mm -hmm. just any plant-based diet, mm -hmm. um, does X and therefore Y and Z, right? So we know it does these different things that you're referring to. We know that it um, can help remediate cardiovascular disease. Um, there's evidence that um, it can help, um, you know, prevent or stem the, the progression of cancer. Um, those kinds of things have been have been looked at. Um, I think that if you want to think about it, you know, from a sort of cellular perspective, and, and David Sinclair talks about this, this concept of hormesis, right? He always says, eat stressed plants, because that's mm -hmm. going to help you as well. Um, and so uh, I, I work with um, with epigenetics, and so that's the expression of your, your genetic code. Um, and so I, I am imagining that there's also uh, effects that the plant-based diet has on how how that works. And, and certainly it affects the activation of different genes, which to your point may then affect the development or not of cardiovascular disease or the development or not of, of cancer. Um, so I don't know off the top of my head of any particular studies looking at, um, you know, a plant-based diet uh, activating a tumor suppressor gene, but I would imagine that that, that might be um, something to look at and probably has been looked at already. So I, I think it's, it's more of an entourage effect. It's not necessarily any one specific thing. Um, and I also do believe, and this is not very scientific, but you know, when, when you're, when you're living your life consuming in a way that is less damaging to the environment and to other sentient creatures, I feel like you'll probably do less damage to yourself. And that is not scientifically validated. That is a very woo woo mm. statement, but it is just something that I personally believe. And so um, I will, I will put my neck out there and say that. Um, but I, I do, I do believe like, like gets like, you know, and so mm. if you're participating in a system of violence, how do you think that's going to affect uh, your body, whether it's the energetic body um, or psychologically, um, if anyone watches how, how these animals are treated and, and furthermore, how these products are produced, what kind of an effect would that have on you? I mean, this is, I guess, I guess it's a bit of a slippery slope because the danger is that there's always this counter argument of, oh, well, what about then a small farm where you just have your one cow? And so, I mean, my response to that is really, is, is that what you're doing? Because that's not sustainable and almost nobody on this planet does that. And yes, we can leave the Maasai tribes alone. Sure, that's what they do. We're not talking about them. We're talking mm. about, you know, the the industrialized, the developed world. Um, and that's, that's the part of the world that can make those changes. Um, and the people who contribute the least to the damage that we're causing are the people who suffer the most, right? Mm. 
So I mean, you you, you say it's very woo woo, but any physicist or astronomer or, or even the scientists at large know that really we're just vibrating molecules and atoms and. While this might never be proven, and science likes to be very black and white, but unfortunately life yeah. is as grey as it gets, we'll never be able to prove, hey, this pig was suffering, its vibration is a little bit different, and we know that your body at a, at a mechanistic and cellular level responds differently when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're depressed. Sure. Through different productions of hormones, the way your metabolism works, all these mechanisms are so particular and and little things can really make drastic changes. So we'll never be able to prove how a person, let's say, feels after, let's say, consuming a pig that has been tortured and terrified its whole life compared to a pig who was happy, died of natural causes. We'll never be able to say that, but we can assume that it... Let's take a different spin to it. We can assume that everyone would be happier knowing that they consumed, say, an animal that lived a great life. However, that's not possible, so why bother? That right. kind of way. But science can't prove anything, and that's crap, but we have to just operate at our, our best level, and, and we know we don't want to be eating things that are terrified and, and mutilated and all these different things. Uh, absolutely. And you know, I would imagine certainly that uh, a pig that's lived its whole life the way that most pigs do live their whole lives in, in the current industrial farming system, or even a pig that lives on, you know, people say free range, which is really quite a misnomer. And that's a whole other conversation. But let's say there was a pig that was running around freely and it was enjoying its life with its friends and it was rolling around in the mud and it had a great time. And then you sent it off to the, the abattoir, the, the slaughterhouse that pig is going to die in fear. It is a horrific situation. We know that the pigs raised in factory farms uh, go to the same place and meet the same end as the pigs that were running around in a field. And so anyway, you have that rush of adrenaline, you have those, you know, the hormones that the pig is feeling at that moment. Um, And so then you're consuming that. Um, But I, but it's sort of why I I don't love the health argument for, for veganism and actually, um, uh, gosh, what's his name? Uh, Joey Carbstrong, you know, the activist. I love him. He's awesome. Mm. And he always says, look, you want to eat yourself to death with donuts? I don't care, man. Like, that's not what I'm going after. And I I, I respect that position. Um, I think, like I said at the earlier in the conversation, we, we do have to, we, we have to get people to come to the light, however they're going to come to the light. But when it comes to to health, I really am of the opinion that if you would like to be healthy and, and improve your health span, here's how you can do it. And we can give you that information, but I, I'm certainly not paternalistic about it. Like if you wish to eat junk and you still want to be a vegan, cool, man, go ahead. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah, for obviously sure. I, like, like you said, the animals don't care why, if you want to, you can, let's, let's say people who eat a high animal diet, you know, you're consuming a lot of saturated fat and it's, shown generally speaking if you eat 80 percent, at least 80 percent plants probably gonna be better off mediterranean style diets but if you eat a high animal saturated fat cholesterol diet that's shown to be not beneficial to your health so if you want to crap on your health you don't need animals for that you can do that with a vegan diet essentially where you're going with that that's right and because because you know um I think the, the general sense, the, the sense in the, the, the general public's mind, and my mom had even made this comment to me um, kind of unaware uh, about a year ago, um, is that the idea that vegan diets are equivalent with, 
to healthy diets. And, and we, we know that that's not true. Right. Um, and so I remember going to some pub at, around Christmas time, uh, with, with her and there was no food for me to eat there. So like any vegan, I just ordered French fries because what else was I going to have? Mm. Um, and, and the fries came and she looked at me very annoyed and said, well, those aren't vegan. Those aren't healthy. And I was like, they're just potatoes, mom. That's, that's what a vegan diet is. So she had this misconception as well, that I was doing this solely for health, which in many, mm. many ways I, I, I am. Um, but because, because there's an ethical, angle to it. Um, sure. I'll eat something unhealthy. It's, you know, I, I, I think it's definitely something that we have to work to, to correct so that people understand, um, what the diet actually is, but also that, you know, it is an ideology. It's, it's, it's not, it's not a diet. Mm, for sure. It, it, there is that definite line now that's becoming a, a lot more publicized now, kind of which category do you, or camp do you sit in vegan or plant-based or whole foods, plant-based or, or mostly, or, what's that term, flexitarian or whatever that is. And they're all got their different ideologies and, and lifestyles. But I want to circle back to longevity for a second, um, obviously taking advantage of your knowledge here. When we're looking at the plant-based diet, a lot of the time it is actually beneficial and the mechanistic way of that, of course, hasn't been fully proved. But we do know that it reduces inflammation. Yep. Now, how... I'm not sure of this, but how exactly does inflammation affect aging? Is that how it works? Yeah, there's actually a term called inflammaging even. <laughs> so, oh, wow. you know, yeah, so you can Google that one. Um, I mean, inflammation is at the root of so much disease, right? And uh, one example of how aging and inflammation are correlated Um is that as you age, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of cellular senescence, if you know what that is. Please if explain. Not. Cool. So this is a antagonistic pleiotropic effect. And what that means is that something that benefits the organism when it's younger, pre, uh, like up to reproductive years and sort of through its, its good fertile years is, is not beneficial to the organism past the so-called expiration date. Mm -hmm. And so I say that because senescence is very important. Um, it's a process of cell cycle arrest. So, you know, you constantly have these rogue cells, right? And you don't want them to proliferate at any given moment. You know, there can be a cancer cell developing, right? Because you have broken DNA or you have, um, you know, something gets mismatched, so to speak, right? Because your cells are constantly dividing. And so it's sort of a stopgap measure. Um, and so what happens is, it, and I'm giving a very crude high level example here, um, but as the cells are proliferating, um, and there's a limit to that, by the way, called the Hayflick limit, but um, the, the cell cycle will be arrested if there's damage. And that's a, that's a protective measure because you don't want some, something damaged to keep proliferating or you'll end up with cancer. Um, and so that's very beneficial to the, to the organism um, in its, in, through its reproductive years. The problem is that after your, your reproductive years, and that's like sort of a, a gray line, but, but let's say, let's say it's, it's past, past just past reproductive years. Um, you accumulate more and more senescent cells. And so when it arrests the cell and it stops proliferating, the cell just sits there. It's called like a zombie cell. So it's, mm -hmm. it's no longer, proliferating, but what it does while it's sitting there is it starts to secrete um, the stuff called SASP, uh, senescence associated secretory phenotype. So there are these cytokines, which are inflammatory, mm -hmm. right? These inflammatory chemicals um, and it's giving off these signals and it causes neighboring cells to then senesce, right? And so 
now you can see how that becomes a, a bit of a runaway train. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's, there's this whole field um, in, in, in uh, aging therapeutics called senolytics, where they are attempting to develop something to either stop the senescent process to some degree or to ablate the senescent cells, meaning clear them out so that they're not sitting there in this zombie state secreting pro, you know, bad chemical signals and, and screwing up all the other cells. So that's a very high, high level um, example. And so, you know, th- that's inflammatory, right? That's an inflammatory mm-hmm. um, situation that it's creating. And so that's one example of as you're aging, um, it's like a positive feedback loop, right? It's sort of that runaway mm-hmm. train, kind of like the carbon cycle, um, where it's just is reinforcing itself. So that's one example. Um, and so I, I forget what your original question was. Like, I like tangent about well, that. That, that kind of does answer it because I was talking about, we know plant-based diets reduce inflammation and then that, that is actually the mechanistic reason why we don't want inflammation. And I'm guessing that kind of sits at, something we've talked about on the show a little bit is water fasting. And when you get to a certain point, you get autophagy. And is that autophagy, does that tackle, if you know, that process as well? I actually don't know if water fasting is clearing senescent cells. So I don't want to give you a definitive Mm -hmm. answer, not knowing off the top of my head, but I do know that um, water fasting does, um, and, and any fasting actually, uh, of any kind, even Walter Longo's prolon fast, which I've done many times, gets you into that uh, sort of state of autophagy. So you can begin to clear away that cellular debris. And yes, if, if that stuff, that gunk is sitting there, it can, you know, it can create in, uh, a state of inflammation, as can many, many things. And I should revise something that I said earlier, which is not that it's not that we don't know any of the it's, it's not that science has not understood the mechanisms by which a plant-based diet may mediate the aging process. It's that there's many different yeah. uh, mechanisms. So um, in that book, Fiber Fueled, um, and mm-hmm. I'm going to mess up his last name, so I won't say it. I'll just say Dr. Will with a Bushowitz. B. Bushowitz. yes. Um, so he talks about that, right? And I'll probably misquote it if I attempt to explain the mechanism, but mm-hmm. um, the more fiber that you eat, mm-hmm. right, the, 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 the more uh, anti-inflammatory um, effect you, you you're accruing and and there's a whole reason why um and again i don't have it in front of me so i don't want to repeat it incorrectly but he talks a lot about that as well so we know that that's one avenue and there are mechanisms um involved with that i think there yeah. are definitely more that we have not elucidated yet and a lot of the studies are association studies right they're epidemiological studies which is the criticism from the sort of anti-vegan camp which is yeah. hilarious like when you don't like epidemiology, that's how do you think any of the medicines you take were developed or the vaccines or yeah. any of that stuff? Um, so a lot of it's associative and, and because it's epidemiological, you're not elucidating the mechanism, right? You're just mm-hmm. saying, we know that these groups of people ate this way and they had less cancer and less heart disease. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are also certain plants that are mediating uh, different effects, right? So we know that soy has phytoestrogen, which is very helpful um, yeah. in, in combating uh, uh, things like breast cancer or ovarian cancer. So I, I think there's like many, many different ways. And I should have maybe clarified that earlier. No, that's perfect. Thanks for that. And kind of circling back again then to when you mentioned the stresses of plants, right? Plants have, and it, from my memory, if I were to dive deep in there, they're the polyphenols of the plants, they're the stresses. And that's mm-hmm. what we can find more in, if I remember correctly, the organic fruits and veg. Do you know, to your knowledge, if there's like a, is it not like GMO foods, I think have less 
polyphenols or do you know how that affects or balances things? Well, stressed plants um, are generally more vibrant and richer in color, right? So mm-hmm. that's why when, when David Sinclair is always saying, you want to eat those stressed plants, these are these very vibrant plants. Um, and, and that's what you're seeing, right? That's that. And, and, and so I don't want to bucket GMOs into the, hey, you're not getting the right amounts of polyphenols. The issue with GMOs, in, in, in my perspective, is not that they're genetically modified. It's that they're genetically modified to withstand horrific chemicals. So glyphosate is the problem. The fact that the plant is genetically engineered, in, in my opinion, is not the problem. So there's a bit of a, not a misnomer, but a misconception there where, where people are vilifying the, the plant itself. And I, I don't know, and maybe there maybe there's additional research saying, yes, when you modify the plant in this way, it's no longer as healthy. Um, but if that plant is being exposed to all these toxins, right, then mm-hmm. how that's obviously going to affect the plant and then going to affect you when you eat it, not just because, not just because, you know, the glyphosate may be sitting on the surface or whatever other fungicide or herbicide, but also because it could be affecting the expression of that the plant's genes and, mm-hmm. and what kind of chemical signals the plant gives off itself. So yeah, you may be right. Um, but certainly I, I would stay away from heavily sprayed plants, fruit, fruits, and vegetables, just because um, we know that those chemicals are highly, highly carcinogenic mm. in many cases. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a good place before we move on just to add, remember to wash your fruit and veg, everyone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're cooking them, just boiling them. And of course, um, yeah, water does the trick most of the time, but um, you can use those Enviro wash things that just get off the little pesticides and things like that. But I wanted to switch gears to an article you did, uh, I believe it was published on Nature, about the longitudinal analysis of biomarker data. Can you give like the kind of sum up of what you found in the study when we're looking at biomarkers? And maybe actually to preface that, can you explain exactly what a biomarker is? Sure. So it, it's two words, bio and marker. And so it's a marker of biological health. That's what we're talking about here. So mm-hmm. the, the a biomarker can be, um, uh, you know, your LDL cholesterol, right? Or mm-hmm. your, your, your fasting glucose. Those are, those are biomarkers. Um, but you could also call other things biomarkers. It depends what you're looking at. Um, you could say that technically somebody's BMI is a biomarker, right? Their height can be a biomarker. It depends it depends how you're using it. Um, but in this instance, and what most commonly uh, is referred to as like blood biomarkers, um, I think when people think of a biomarker, if they know what it is, they're thinking of blood biomarkers. They could also be genetic. Um, but with this paper in particular, uh, it was a, well, the title is a longitudinal analysis of biomarker data, data from a personalized nutrition platform and healthy subjects. Um, and so that was uh, a study using the um, personalized nutrition platforms, uh, algorithm driven platform that my prior company uh, that I worked at for six years, uh, where I mentioned David Sinclair, um, among other uh, aging scientists uh, are on the scientific advisory board. Um, And so that paper was really an analysis of the efficacy of that algorithm. So um, that company Insight Tracker was really, I think, one of the first to market um, in saying, hey, we're going to take your blood and then we're going to run it through all this, you know, all these algorithms. And then we're going to give you this really precise 
nutrition and lifestyle plan. Now you have tons of companies doing that, right? Like Everly Well, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but Inside Tracker was, was really, I think the first um, in that space. Um, and so, yeah, so we had tons of data and this uh, really robust algorithm and, and wanted to see if we established a, a biomarker correlation network, what would we see? Um, and also uh, in addition to, you know, established or novel relationships between biomarkers, um, would it show us associations between specific interventions and uh, corresponding biomarker changes? Because what we would what we would tell people is, you know, you would test and we'd say, oh, you know, your lipids are out of range and your, you know, your ferritin isn't great. And so this is what uh, the algorithm is recommending that you eat. And it was very precise. It would be like, you should eat two servings of green beans and one serving of lentils, you know, two times a day for three weeks or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty, fairly robust. And so the, the paper was looking at those, those sorts of things. Um, and so, yeah, we did, we, we found what it did was it confirmed, you know, expected established relationships, um, between, uh, biomarkers and then like some novel relationships as well, including there was a, relationship, um, uh, kind of connection between uh, neutrophil, uh, levels and triglycerides. And so I'm, that's not my area of expertise, but, mm. um, it's, it's been suggested that it could indicate, um, uh, cardiovascular disease risk. Um, and so the, the correlation network, um, that our data scientists, um, created as they were conducting this study, um, did, you know, reveal some information about that, um, as well as some other unexpected sort of correlations between different markers, uh, magnesium and um, different markers of uh, muscle stress. Um, and then we also looked at, uh, like I was saying, the, the um, efficacy of specific nutrition interventions, nutrition or lifestyle interventions and biomarker changes. Um, and yeah, and, and, and saw that as well. And, and in fact, saw what we knew to be true anecdotally, just from working with our customers, which was that as you uh, improve your nutrition in a very targeted way, your biomarkers move back towards the normal level or the optimal level. Yeah, that that really opens the floodgate to this potential technology that can really, oh, there's there's a there's a group of people that would love this, but it's really kind of like biohacking um, in, in a lot of ways in in my mind anyway. But what I found really fascinating, and there was a certain emphasis on vitamin D and LDL. What is there a particular effect on longevity these two compounds have? Oh, gosh, you know, we published this paper so long ago that I don't even remember what we specifically said about vitamin D and LDL. So well, you've read the paper more re- recently <laughs> than I have. But 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 vitamin D is very, very important for um, for immune function. And, you know, mm-hmm. if you've got very low vitamin D levels and, you know, and, and you're, and you're aging, when, when your immune system is declining as you age anyway, um, vitamin D is also important for bone health, um, and for other functions that decline as you age. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that's... I mean, it's so funny that I read that because I'm, when I read that, the first thing that came to my mind was, and I won't say the full name, I'll shorten it is the vid, um, <laughs> You, you got it. Yeah. Okay. I was like, yep. does she get it? Yeah. Um, it, it kind of, when it came out, there was this big uproar of people that were actually like, Oh, I'm not going to get it. Cause I supplement vitamin D. I'm like, that's so fascinating that I found that no one, I had never heard that vitamin D affects the immunity so much, but then that came about and everyone was supplementing it. 
And then what really comes to mind, and then especially when I was, you know, thinking about longevity and I'm thinking about aging, some people really and really aren't looking forward to, I guess, aging or getting to that certain age where they develop uh, wrinkles and things like that. And it's so funny how we have to go into the sun, get this vitamin D, and apparently sun exposure causes wrinkles. And I'm like, is there, I guess with longevity, we want to expand the healthy years of our lives. So kind of piggybacking on this whole conversation, how do you increase personally what do you do to increase your healthy years oh that's a big question that goes way beyond vitamin d <laughs> yeah i, I yeah. mean people pe- people people are always asking that because they're looking and i'm not saying you are but most people are looking for you know what you read about in as in a media headline which is like what's the magic bullet right like mm. is there a new pill you know Joe Rogan is mainlining uh, NMN or something, right? And, and, and you know, I, I, I caution people against that, not because therapeutic interventions are, are unhelpful because they can mm-hmm. be great and they have been great and they have extended human lifespan, right? Just this discovery of penicillin alone um, has, has, has extended the, the life, lifespan of humans, um, in, you know, within the past century or so. Um, and so... It's not about, at least at this point, until we get real precise with CRISPR or something, and even then I'm skeptical, it's not about one single thing, right? And so that's why when folks say, well, how can you increase your healthy years? Um, and David talks about this a lot in his book as well. It's it's an entourage effect of things, but also if you look at the healthiest long-lived populations, it's a number of things, right? It's your diet, it's quality sleep, it's movement. So we know, very familiar with the fact that the more you sit, the earlier you die, right? It's not even just about exercise. It's like get up and move. Um, Relationships, that's something people really don't talk about. Um, We're in an epidemic of loneliness and isolation way before the the vid, as you called it, way before that, that just made it worse. Um, We think that being connected to people through screens is enough and it's not. So, you know, I I think it'll be very interesting to do retrospective retrospective studies in the future and look back and say what what helped the people who were born from I'm pulling out a number here 1975 onward right what helped them live longer if we'll live very long at all who, who knows um because the, the current information we're using when we're saying oh this you know this population they're over 100 years old right now well it's 2022 so that means these folks were born what 1920 you didn't have mass application of pesticides at that point. You didn't have factory farming. You didn't have the level of pollution that we had. Um, There were so many things that did not exist. You didn't have social media. You had people connected in communities. Um, You know, so I'm not saying life was so great back then, but I'm saying it it was different. And so it's a bit of comparing apples and oranges. So what we can take away is what we know, which is that your diet is really, really important. You know, drinking clean water, sleeping enough, moving, uh, breathing. Um, I love James Nestor's book, Breathe. It's awesome. I think that that probably has a huge impact. Meditation. Um, so like I recommend those things to people. And sometimes I think folks are a little bit disappointed. You can see they're like crestfallen because they're like, oh, I thought there was something easy. Um, and I'm like, well, those things are easy. They make you feel good. Like, you know, it's not it's not that hard. I know that in the the culture that we live in does not reward slowing down or sleeping or connection or love or any of that. So actually I should say maybe it is, it is kind of difficult, but if you can attain those things to some degree, 
they're fairly rewarding and they make you feel better. So it's not like taking a spoonful of gross medicine, right? Um, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. You know, I, I'm sure that in a lot of ways you love the blue zones and you find them fascinating. And I think everyone should. When I found out about the blue zones, which is like what you're talking about, these longest living um, centurions and, and adults in these communities that have all those aspects. They've got the beautiful lifestyle. They eat a majority plants. They, you know, drink your red wine. Although I think in, in my research, red wine only reduces TMAO. So if you don't eat meat, red wine has less of an effect. But that's on a sidebar. It's it's a lot of things. It's it's a million things. And so you're right. There is no magic bullet. But on that note, do you when you first heard of the blue zones, if you can recall. Um, what did you think of at the, what did you extrapolate from learning about their existence? I mean, the thing that struck me most actually wasn't the the diet because that I sort of, I felt was intuitively apparent already. What struck me the most that we're missing, you can, you can attain their diet, right? I mean, you could argue that the quality of food is different and surely it is different than what people were eating 80 years ago. Um, but the thing that is hardest to attain, I will say this as someone living in a city, uh, is the connection and, and, and love and, and rich relationships where you physically touch people, not, you know, the text. And, and, and I'm, I'm totally going to butcher uh, this and you probably Google it and find the study. But there was a study, I think, a couple of years ago um, where these psychologists looked at the effect of somebody saying, to you in a room, not like this, like we're on Zoom now, but face-to-face in a room, I love you. And then they had uh, people text, I love you. And I believe they had individuals hooked up to all sorts of devices, maybe EEGs and ECGs, and they were measuring lots of biomarkers, right? How is the brain responding? What chemical uh, signal is happening? How is the heart responding? Mm. Um, And when they texted the words, I love you, the recipient did not respond at all in the way that they did when the person verbalized it in front of them. So back to your point of like, you know, it's not woo-woo science. We just, our paradigm, our scientific paradigm does not currently allow us to see and explain certain things. And that to me is very interesting. And that tells me we can't achieve exactly what the blue zones achieved if, if that is the case, unless we really start making change in how we connect with each other. So I, I think most disease, the root of disease, as my dad always says, is this illusion of suffering. Uh, sorry, the root of suffering is this illusion of separateness, right? Mm. So if disease is dis-ease uh, and it is a state of suffering, this idea that we're separate from each other, from the animals, from the, the plants, from everything, like that's the cause of the suffering, right? All the, the Zen Buddhist masters talk about that. That's not new. Um, and so I think that, that that's what my greatest takeaway from the Blue Zones work was, was, wow, these people have community. And not only do they have community, it is not an online community. It's a tactile, physical community where people can come over and pick something from your garden and they can have tea with you and they can help you and they can hug you. And that's why I think we have seen so much damage from the past two years. And I'm not I'm not here to criticize specific interventions or be pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown. I'm just saying that regardless of whether or not you agree with that, the fact is that there is consequence to that. Now you might argue the consequence of not doing that is that everybody could have died of, of the virus, right? Okay, so there's that as well. Um, and I'm, I'm not here to debate that one way or the other, but 
I think it's really damaging. Like there's, we don't know the level of damage that that's caused yet, but keeping people locked away inside, that is not helping your lifespan. I mean, and, and, and for sure getting sick and, and dying of a virus also doesn't help your, help your lifespan. So I'm not suggesting we should have done nothing. Um, but we, we do have to recognize that even before the pandemic, that was a big problem. And that's something that people, generations past never had that issue. Not chronically like we do. Mm, it's it's so I don't know I'm not even sure what the word is that it's just crazy that there's so many different avenues and we are trained to want this magic bullet I'm not sure where that came from exactly that we want this one thing the one pill or one rule that is just the mecca like the top and it kind of goes to show like when we're looking at community and connection which is something that was damaged well before the virus we I'm fascinated or interested to find out what that actually affects you at an internal level. So let's say I see someone on the street litter and I'm like, man, that is so far from my values. You would never see me in a million years throw something on the ground and not take responsibility for that because I know that litter then can go into the ocean that can end up in the Philippines and affect someone's backyard and neighborhood and that pollution that affects their life. And there's, there's a big circle and, equal and opposite response to everything you do. And so when we're looking at these relationships with other people, it's like, I wonder if we start to repair these relationships, say with with your friends, with your family, have a better connection and that makes you feel better internally and then you watch Dominion and you're like, I feel connected now because I understand I am happy so I would want to wish that upon other beings. I would want to wish that upon the planet. I would wish that upon anyone. And so if you're suffering inside because you don't have this connection or whatever that may be, and you see these animals suffering, it's like, they no, that's okay. They suffer. I'm suffering. You suffer. Like, why right. do I have to be alone in my suffering? And so I think that is this potential for this incredible cycle that if we make one person happy, that makes all the difference in the world. And that, space completely opposite to that whole thing you know vegans cop this what what difference does one person make all the freaking difference because if you're happy then this other person's happy then the other person it's this is incredible cycle so this uh it is well needed to go on a journey of self-discovery self-healing um and what comes from that the residual effects and the compounding interest of your happiness is just ludicrous how big that can really be at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, you know, to that point, I mean, that's why I always say in the discussions about longevity, guys, think beyond humans. Um, Bodhi, it's okay. Sorry, my my little pup wants to cross and wire from the computer is in front of us. (laughs) Come here, Bodhi. Um, You might see him one time. Uh, yeah, but I mean, look, it's 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 all connected, right? So when people talk about what can they do to increase their health span, I'm like, well, you can do these things, but humans, I think, have no shot at improving their health span, true quality of lifespan, if they don't heal their relationship, not just with themselves and with other humans, but with the animals and the environment. You know, we've heard this time and time again from various indigenous communities. This is not new right? Um, There's all these beautiful quotes that people like to post them and they don't actually follow them. But 
it's there for a reason. And I'm like, I kind of just want to shake people sometimes and be like, it's great to think about human flourishing. And in my work in bioethics at Harvard Medical School, right, it's largely, it's largely driven by this idea of human flourishing and all these wonderful conversations that we have about justice and, you know, how things are structured and how, how can we advance human flourishing without harming others. And I'm always like, yes, and how can we expand that sphere of consideration to other sentient beings? Because I believe animals do have moral status, but also even if you were just completely selfish and you only cared about your own lifespan, you can't achieve it in a vacuum. You, know, you can't achieve it while you're going around burning down the rainforest and hurting the, the poor monkeys who now have no home because you just cut down their palm tree house. You know, I mean, it's just like, mm. it's just, it's, 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 it's obscene, you know, or the way that we think it's okay to torture and kill and steal from other living beings because they're separate from us. Like, unless people remedy that, they're not gonna, they're not going to, to increase longevity in a way that's sustainable because we'll kill the planet. Right. Mm. But there's also an energetic component that you were talking about. And I, I really do. I really do believe that that's true. Um, people who are unhappy don't live as long. That is scientifically proven. There's studies on that. Um, look at the people who are forced to work in these industries, whether it's in a slaughterhouse or a factory farm or whether it's in, you know, the, the, the palm oil groves or fields, whatever they're called. I mean, those people are exploited, they're powerless, they're marginalized, they're dealing with violence and toxicity all the time. What kind, of, like, what kind of life is that? That doesn't work. You can't say that everyone is not entitled to flourishing. So when you start to create that separation, I think you destroy any opportunity for, 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 for truly sustainable, prolonged health span. That's my spiel. I love it. And if, you know, if knowing that your unhappiness uh, alone causes you to live less, if that's not incentive enough for you to be happier, I'm I'm not sure what is. Because people, you know, if you don't care about animals, surely at a certain level you care about yourself. And exactly, you know, if you want to live longer, just be happy. (laughs) Um, Be kind, right? Be be kind. and that's not always easy being, being, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to tell people you just have to be happy because so many people are suffering from depression and anxiety and it's, it's, you know, it's physiological. Many times it's not people's fault. It's the food they eat. There are genetic components. It's the fact that as we discussed, they don't live in strong communities. It can be somebody grew up in a resource poor setting with, you know, poor socioeconomic status. And there's a million reasons why you could be unhappy and many, many people are unhappy. So I I certainly don't want to um, criticize anyone for, Mm -hmm. for not being happy. I'm not happy all the time. And I don't think most people are particularly happy in the past two years. And then we come out of that and we're like, Oh, there might be a world war. Great. You know, there's a lot of panic and, and anger and sadness. Um, so I, I certainly, I certainly do not, uh, indict anyone over that. I just Mm. think that there, there are ways to improve happiness and that includes what you put into your body three times a day how you take care of your body and how you interact with other individuals. And those individuals include non-humans as well. Yeah. That's a really good clarification. Um, thanks for that. But I want to change gears for a second. We've talked about a few different things and I, you know, we've mentioned animals and animal lives quite, quite a lot through the, 
timeline of this conversation and you're on the advisory board of Animal Save Movement. Um, there's a few questions I have on that. Um, firstly, people, I think, listening to this gen- would generally be familiar with Animal Save Movement or, or sister branches like the Climate Save Movement and, and the Youth Climate Save mm-hmm. Movement and, and all of that. But I, I want to know what it's actually... Because a lot of people find it hard to do something that really aligns with their ethics and values. And when we look at the name Animal Save Movement and then we, you know, we've come to know you through this conversation, we're like, oh, that is fully aligned. And I know for a lot of vegans, they want to do things that aligns with their values. I I mean, everyone does, but specifically with vegans, they want to do something that isn't contributing to the suffering of these animals. So one of those opportunities is sitting on boards. And I know you've had the opportunity throughout your your careers to sit on multiple boards and specifically with the animal save movement one, what is it like to be on a board? What does that even mean when someone looks at that? Oh gosh. Well, I guess it means something different depending on the organization and the industry. Um, not, not all board positions are the same. This is an advisory board position. So I should clarify that. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we have, regular meetings, um, discussing campaign strategy. And most boards are concerned with, uh, operational stuff and logistics, you know, so, so sort of corporate governance, um, stuff that's not that sexy and exciting, to be honest. Um, you know, I think it's great. I actually really quite enjoy that. I like being able to, um, to the degree that I can contribute, um, I have a corporate, corporate background, right. I started my career on wall street, um, and, and I currently am a, a C-suite executive in, in the biotech sector. So, so it's, it's, it's exciting for me to be able to bring all that business experience to something that I'm so passionate about. It's not that I don't like my current, I love my current job job, the one that is my, my day job. I love it. Um, it's not an activist job and that's okay. Um, and, and so to be able to, you know, I, I think the, the ideal on the ideal board for a nonprofit like an advisory board, which is very different than a board for, you know, a public company or something, um, or a private company. Um, I think the ideal advisory board has individuals who each are bringing a skill set from another area in to, to that organization. Um, and so, so for me, you know, um, some of that can be business and management. Um, you know, I, I do, I'm the chief pro- chief product officer is my current role. So thinking about um, thinking about product and the user experience, right? You can translate mm-hmm. that also to a, a very large international NGO like the Save Movement as well, which has many many arms and is a very mm-hmm. complex organization, which makes it exciting because the opportunity for impact is really broad. Um, but you know, Anita Kreins, uh, our founder, when she founded it, specifically wanted to have all these little individual chapters. She didn't. She she and she could speak to this much better than I can. But um, she based it off of um, uh, Cesar Chavez's work um, with the farmers and did not want you know this one big sort of corporate glob at the top telling everyone else what to do, right? She's like, no, we need to empower this sort of grassroots activism. Um, And so that's how the saving movement does it. That's not how every uh, NGO does it. And that's totally cool. Everyone has their own, their own means and their own way of of getting there. I mean, it just makes me happy to be able to be involved Mm -hmm. in any capacity, whether it's like helping think of campaign ideas or, um, you know, corporate structure, whatever. So that we can advance the agenda um, and the work of movement, which is really the yep. important part to help animals. 
I mean, what I'd love to know on the back of that is really taking advantage of your experience there to kind of give some advice to someone who is aligned with the vegan values. How, how can someone or what is the easiest way for them to get involved within the activist field in whatever uh, industry or field they want to be in? Yeah, I mean, look, I would also tell vegans, you're, you're doing something three times a day, presuming you eat meals three times a day. So don't discount that, right? I think there's people put a lot of pressure on themselves, like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm vegan now. And so I, I need to go out and additionally do these things. Like, it's enough just to lead by example, sometimes, you know, I mean, not everyone has to do the work that the state movement does. In fact, it's not right for everyone, right? Because there's a lot of, um, secondary trauma there. Like I, I, not everyone is, is, is able to look at really difficult imagery. Some people can't watch Dominion, even though we encourage people to bear witness and not look away because that's the ethos of our particular organization. But if that's something, I, I know I have friends who are wonderful, um, influential vegan activists um, and they don't look at any of that footage because it upsets them to the point where they cannot function. And you, you shouldn't expose yourself to that. You already know it. You know, if you don't want to, don't do it. Um, and so I think the best advice is, first of all, don't be so hard on yourself. But second of all, and recognize that you're making a difference. Second of all, lead by example. Um, before I became an ethical vegan, I, I had this uh, uh, two friends, they're a couple, and they're like literally the most, I always say this in every interview, they're like physically beautiful. Like they're a gorgeous, beautiful couple. They're, they look like, you know, like the traditional Instagram couple. They're just beautiful. And they're also beautiful humans with beautiful hearts and they're vegan. And, you know, they don't, they don't walk around advertising it necessarily. And, and, and no one would necessarily know because there's some ridiculous stereotype about what vegans should look like, but mm -hmm. they inspire a lot of people, right? They're super fit. I'm really into fitness. And so it's people like that, or like Nima Delgado and that, that whole group that resonates mm -hmm. with me may not resonate with everyone. So I say also like lead by example, right? Like be the change you wish to see and allow people to see that, wow, this person is beautiful and thriving and, and, and healthy and happy or whatever it is, doesn't have to just be about looks. Um, and then the last thing I would say is bring your gifts to the table. So not everybody is a loud mouth, you know, not everyone is an extrovert. Some people are introverted and they don't want to be outside with a picket sign. And they also don't want to look at violence and that's okay. Um, maybe you can make flyers or, you know, you can help a, 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 a vegan activist group by applying your writing skills. Or what if you're an accountant? You could offer your accounting skills to, to an organization. So like, think about what you're already good at and you like to do, and then say, hmm, how can I maybe apply this? But also don't pressure yourself to, to do that if, if that's, if you don't have time or whatever, you're still doing something by not harming animals, you know? Mm. I think that not pressuring is a very, very important thing that I don't think we've actually talked about in the show because everyone has their own internal pressures. Like I have to do this and it comes stems from vulnerabilities. As we know, we're not going to go deep into ego breakdowns and, and, and all of that. But it is very important because all of us suffer it in, in certain levels and in different balances and whatnot. But, it, you know, you just recognizing that you are now making the change and being the change you wish to see in the world, I think is enough. So I think that's a very good point. Um, very compassionate point. Um Obviously, you, I would assume, were going through something where you're like, I, I am enough already, but you want to do all these extra things. And like I said at the beginning, your repertoire is humongous. Having done pretty much everything or most things a human can do. And something that, you know, I was thinking about 
is this person's ambi- this person's ambitious being being you and they've done all these things but they're also a female and so what really comes to me when i'm talking about this is for a lot of times i i think it can be hard as a female and especially cuz you're experienced in the corporate world that's something that um, i mean in australia we still have a decent um, pay gap unfortunately um, mm. and it is something that needs to be talked about and i'm sure on a global level it is it is still available in, in one way or another. And I wanted to get your particular advice for a female, given that you're ambitious. And this can go whatever way you want it to go. Um, but I wanted to give you the floor for a moment just to talk on being a female, being ambitious, maybe working in corporate and kind of not fitting into certain stereotypes. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a big question. <laughs> First, to your point about the pay gap, which is spot on, I would orient everyone because uh, yesterday there was, oh God, I'm going to forget what the, it was like pay equality day or some, something like that. I'm, I'm totally misquoting it. But there was, was in, on Twitter. Was International Women's Day the other day, actually. So that fits. That, that was last week, wasn't it? Uh, okay. I don't know. Yeah. I think that was last week. There was something else um, where they were looking at pay gap and there's mm-hmm. a, there's a, a Twitter account called pay gap app. Um, and it's a bot. And what they were doing all day yesterday was, uh, like they will, they, they, I think if a company hashtag, what's it international? I thought international women's day was a week or two ago. Maybe it was women's day in America. And then it was the international one yesterday, whatever it was, there was a hashtag (laughs) that was going around and all these big companies, as they always do, these big corporations were like highlighting a story about how wonderful the women in their workplace are and how great they treat them. And then using this hashtag and the the bot on Twitter, everyone should just go look up pay gap app on Twitter. I think that's what it's called. And it automatically grabs that tweet. And then it quotes the tweet with the um, average pay gap disparity between men and women in that organization. So it called everyone out. So McKinsey, wow. for example, which huge global consulting firm featured some, you know, very nice imagery of a woman said something rather cliche and uh, the, the, the bot retweeted and it says, yes, well, McKinsey has a 22.3% gender pay gap, women making 22.3% less than men at that massive organization. So I, uh, I just, I just thought of that as you said that, because yes, it still exists. And there are places where women make more than men. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that's not the that's not the standard. Um, and yeah, I appreciate your question. I think it depends on the industry that you work in. And I think, you know, um, the Me Too movement did do a lot. Um, unfortunately for me, I worked much of my career uh, and you know, certainly all my career in, in finance on Wall Street before that happened. Um, and so as did, you know, most women had been, have been working well before that, that movement occurred. Um, and so, you know, to some degree, people don't know what they don't know. You know, it's the incompetent, incompetent, and I'm not excusing mm-hmm. ingrained, uh, biases or, or poor behavior, or, you know, institutionalized, um, gender bias, which, which is what it is. Um, but I think that with we talked about this actually in my bioethics class with, with the Me Too movement, a lot of the reaction against it uh, by people going, what are you talking about? Like women can be executives, women are just fine, They're, right? They weren't speaking 
from the perspective of the individuals who are affected. And this isn't just women. You could say the same for, you know, uh, Black people in America. I, I can't comment on Australia, but I know you have issues with your Indigenous population and how yeah. they're treated. Um, and so it's like, you're, you know, again, once again, it's, and it's, it, it's a lack of empathy. And it's how you were saying someone could watch Dominion and not resonate with what that animal was feeling because they see that animal as so different from them and so separate. And they do not understand the lived experience of the animal. And I'm not making a comparison here. I'm just drawing on your yep. prior example. Um, and so that's what was happening a lot, um, you know, during the, the Me Too movement, I think the reaction against it was, what are you talking about? Everything's fine. But of course, everything wasn't fine. And all these women were speaking up because they felt finally empowered to. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really big problem. And it was, uh, you know, I think any uh, female who has worked, particularly in certain industries, um, finance, tech, science, I'm leaving out industries and I haven't worked in every industry. And I know that discrimination exists in all industries. I can only speak to the ones that I've I've worked in and where um, you know some of the data shows that it's particularly egregious where you have very few women being promoted or at the top, um, women being maybe discouraged from uh, having children, right? So there's there's a whole issue, the ethics of companies offering um, you know, uh, assisted reproduction, reproductive technology access, you know, IVF and stuff like that, free egg freezing. So a lot of tech companies started offering egg freezing, which is great. And I wish that my prior employers had offered that. Um, it's popular now. It wasn't as popular previously. But if you step back and say, well, what's the um, agenda? Is this, are you only offering this because many young women are asking for this? Or are you trying to discourage um you know, uh, women from, from having families earlier and to delay uh, childbearing so that they can, you know, get farther in their career. And in, I don't know what, what, what the intention is in many of these cases, but regardless, there should be no reason why a woman um, in her childbearing years would be considered any, any differently than her male counterpart, simply because she has the burden of bearing a a human life and now may have to take six months off or in America, we don't even get that much. Um, you know, that, that to me is the issue that we need to address is why is that seen as a bad thing and, and why are men in America not given much time off to spend with their families? So again, it sort of goes back to that idea of love and connection. Um, and when you don't value connectivity, then why would you value, you know, um, people spending time with their families? So I think that's that's one um, area to sort of look at. Um, and yeah, just in my, my personal experience, sure, of course it's harder for women, but I, I, I'm not here to complain about it. I'm just here to say that it's a thing. Um, and then if anyone thinks that it's gone away completely, they're wrong. Um, I know there are women though, who feel quite strongly that everything's fine for them. Um, and I would ask them to check their privilege and say, are you a woman who is benefiting from geographic location, from race, from religion, from socioeconomic status, um, because those are also variables that affect things, not just, um, you know, your gender at birth or what you currently identify as. So I don't know, I just rambled a bit. <laughs> I think that was really important, but I am going to kind of dive a little deeper there for a second, because I know we have gone, I am conscious of time, but I really wanted some, I want you to speak directly to a female that maybe feels a bit held back by her circumstances in this current society? Well, 
I, I think, you know, it depends what the situation was specifically, right? Mm. There could it's be a really a broad question, I know. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I know. mean, if if they're being harassed, then they, they should, you know, go to their, their HR department and, and mm. there are legal, there's a legal recourse there. Um, they can press legal action. Um, I think it, it really depends on exactly in, yeah. in what way. If it's just generally that you feel um, the opportunities are not there for you. Um, look, you know, there are many women's groups in different industries. Um, so finding yourself a mentor, aligning with, with groups that promote women, um, in various sectors, lots of those exist, which is wonderful. So like never underestimate the power of networking. Um, you know, men do it all the time. They just don't always need men's groups. Although sometimes I think there are men's groups and, and I don't want to discount you know, the, the issues men face as well, too, like mm-hmm. uh, little boys in Western society, you know, are raised a certain way. And that doesn't always net out really very well that you have to suppress your emotions and not be sensitive. It's BS. Right. So um, I don't want to discount that either. But for for a, uh, a woman in her career at any stage, I think, who has a desire to get ahead and doesn't feel that she has the resources around her, maybe doesn't have a mentor, doesn't have a supportive boss, there's not supportive structure or company. Um, I Yeah, I would suggest leveraging all of the, you know, the digital tools we were just complaining about LinkedIn and, you know, there's tons of um, meetup groups and stuff like that. I know that sounds sort of trite, but I actually think it's really important. Um, mm-hmm. Even alumni groups at your, from your school, like people, people are more helpful than not. I, I tend to try and see the good in people because if I don't, I just couldn't go on with the things that I witness people doing to animals. So I actually believe that people really want to help. And if you ask for help, you'll usually find it. Um, and if you're in a really bad situation, there are also you know other resources that can help with mental health, or if you're in an abusive situation, like there are government resources too. So I, there's always resources. So I would say, look for the resources. There are resources to help you find the resources. Go to Reddit, you know, I mean, there's, 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 there's tons of places. Yeah, now I wanna take one more question before we wrap it up. Now, we've talked about 101 different topics today, um, but I wanted to really give you an opportunity to take the stage and speak of anything you want in <laughs> forms of Erin's words of wisdom. It could be related to something we've been talking about today. It could be something you've been thinking about or reading about in the last week, month, or year, but I wanted to give you the stage for this last question. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Gosh. Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of touched on the thing that I'm on my soapbox most about that I really wish people would integrate um, and hear, really hear and incorporate. And I think probably most of your listeners get this, um, but I'm assuming something about your listener base. But I think we can all always get better at that, right? Which is, um, like I I said before, this this illusion of separateness um, as a global society, we are suffering. I'm not here to be negative. That's just it. I mean, look at the situation in Ukraine right now, right? Like I, I read this somewhere. I, I'm gonna forget who wrote it. It was a couple of weeks ago, but violence begets violence. This is what we were talking about when we talked about, you know, um, require, we need a moratorium on, on, on commercial animal agriculture. Violence begets violence. And so 
I support the Ukrainians, you know, to, to as much as I possibly can. I mean, I, I went to Kiev actually um, three years ago to interview this amazing DJ duo. They're called Art Bat. They're awesome. I don't know if you know them, um, but they're from Kiev. They're really cool. They actually formed their DJ uh, producer partnership during the 2014 revolution. So that's what a lot of their music was inspired by. And I learned that when I went to see them in 2019. And the thing that struck me about uh, Ukraine and about Kiev, uh, the people that I met there, was they were like the most passionate, proud people, but they were also the most kind people ever. I've been all over the world. Like these were some of the kindest people I've ever met. They were so excited when they heard my American voice, like, oh, do you have you been here? Have you had this food? Let us give you this. How about that? I mean, we, I went to a restaurant, this like little outdoor cafe in Kiev. I'll never forget this young waiter came over and I was with a, 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 the, the publicist of, of these DJs. He, he's British. So he had a British accent. I'm American. We're speaking English. And the, the kid, this waiter comes over and he goes, oh, are you American? I have some cookies for you. And it was like cookies his grandma had made. And he went to the kitchen to his like backpack yeah. and brought them out for us. And I was like, oh my God, these people are incredible. Anyway, I only say that to say that when this whole thing happened, you know, it broke my heart as it does when it happens in Syria and Yemen. My my dad's parents are refugees from, from, from Yemen. Um, you know, and it's very sad that we have not talked about that at all, but that's another conversation. I don't think relativism is helpful here. Um, but all that is to say is that we see the world, most of the world, in supporting Ukraine, which is great, which we should um, emotionally, also being embracing this violence, right? And I understand that Ukrainians must fight back against the Russian invaders, because if someone was invading my home, that's what I would do. However, when we reward and applaud violence, we ourselves take on that violence. And so I don't think that it's a good thing that everybody is sort of engendering violence again I, I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way because mm, yeah. i fully support i support you know ukraine's fight for their freedom and i mean i have a lot of thoughts about how nato and the west really effed this up i have nothing nice to say about about my my current american uh administration at the moment um and their part in this but forget all of the politics the point is, is that the world is watching very angrily and my concern is that when you start separating you know, you see it with people saying, oh, screw the Russians, you know, send the ruble to the ground. I'm like, well, first of all, you're just hurting these poor, regular Russian people. I have a lot of friends over there. Like, they're nice people. They don't support this crap. This is one psychopath and a few autocrat, you know, oligarchs and whatever. So, so the, the point being is, like, it's, it's not okay what's happening there, but it's also not okay to continue to separate and and be violent and like that's my that's the thing ever since i was small i never liked violence like i remember being very physically upset by it which is probably why i'm vegan now yeah. um but I, I really concerns me it concerns me because people came out of this pandemic where they were isolated and separated and they were very upset and unhealthy you know because you weren't moving you're stuck inside people are unhealthy after that. And they went through a lot of trauma. There's a lot of firsthand trauma, secondhand trauma. It was a traumatic experience for the world. And now you have more trauma and violence. And what do you do? You turn on the news, which I refuse to watch at this point, and they're just milking the emotion and the trauma more and more because it's addictive, because that's what a traumatized individual does is to re-engage with that trauma. We see this in the activist movement all the time, right? The more trauma you see and the more secondary trauma that you have, the more you feel you must expose yourself to it, which is why CNN or BBC or whoever continually 
tries to evoke this emotion. And so you, you turn on the TV and you see stuff exploding and people crying and pregnant women dying. And these are horrible things that I, that need to stop, but like miring ourselves in that is not going to help heal anything. So this is more just like a plea, I think for people to just be conscious of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when you engage with these things, whether it's animal rights activism or advocating on behalf of an oppressed nation that you're not falling prey to the same crap that caused it in the first place, which is separateness and anger and the, all this, these sort of like these negative um, attributes, which are necessary sometimes when we're in a fight or flight situation, but you can't be in that all the time. And, and so that's, that's what I'm, I'm particularly concerned about right now, I would say. Uh, I'm glad that you didn't say that at the beginning because I feel like our conversation would span for three hours (laughs) and there's a lot we can really dive into there. And I think that's very, very important to someone to think about, you know, you have this, because really what we think this violence is, is it's, it's just, and this is executing justice. You know, it goes upon this and I'm going to, I'm going to completely make someone emotional now, but you look at a different situation like, the black the BLM movement and it's like now say with the George Floyd situation the cop was executed via death would that make someone feel better now you could argue both sides someone puts they say yes that's justice the other side saying not but either way you've fueled violence with violence so I think that's a very fascinating perspective and someone should definitely everyone including myself should definitely be thinking about whether you know what the slippery slope really is um and i understand i don't think there's a lot of ways people can take you out of context i think you had a very compassionate undertone and not a bad um not a bad reason to say any of that but i find that very fascinating we have to think about what we are doing and how that really affects other people and how that affects the future uh, taking mm-hmm. aside the politics and the NATO situation and, and, and Putin's perspective and all of that. Um, but I wanted to, because we're going, going for an hour and a half now, and I wanted to just finish off with a bit of bit of a thank you for you. Now, obviously, this conversation was wide-spanning, and I think a lot of people will take a lot out of it. So I thank you for sh- coming on and sharing your wisdom first and foremost. For, foremost. Um, and I also thank you for, you know, when you're looking at your Instagram account, I've noticed very clearly that you do say you're vegan, you do say I eat plants, and you you're out there saying, you know, I'm a female, I'm building muscle, I'm going to the gym, I'm doing all this successfully, I live a good life, and I align my values with my beliefs, and I think that's very inspiring for a lot of people, women in particular, who see that and and really can find that inspiration within themselves, and also you, you crush a bit of limiting beliefs, I guess, especially when it comes to the fitness side of things that plants you're not a, a depressing sloped human being if you reduce your meat intake or eliminate it altogether. So I find that really awesome that you're out there talking about that. I wish a lot more people were. And I guess there are, you know, parts of the world that do need those, you know, like that attractive, beautiful couple you're talking about who don't really advertise it as much, but do inspire when they do. So I thank you for being out there with yourself, sharing the wisdom, sharing compassion, <laughs> kindness. Um, and I thank you again for, joining us on the plant paradigm podcast and sharing your wisdom thank you so much for having me i I appreciate you and i appreciate everyone who's giving uh, a voice to this conversation so 
well done. <laughs> um, and one, I, I want to make one last clarifying point. So again, no one takes me out of context because I'm very, very sensitive about these things is that yep. um, what motivates me may not motivate everyone else. And so um, I talk about, you know, my friend, uh, my friend Cyrus and Susie are this beautiful couple in London. Um, people can be beautiful in many different ways. So I don't mm -hmm. mean to suggest that I'm yep. being superficial. They just happen to inspire me. I, I think they're, you know, they're attractive, but not just physically in their, in their aura, how they live. Um, and, 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 and some people don't care about that. And that's totally cool. You don't have to be a super fit vegan. So I, I just want to put that out there. No, <laughs> There's yep. something for everyone. Of course. Hi there. Welcome to the end of the episode. Thank you to Erin once again for coming on and sharing your wisdom on the show. I really hope that some of you got a lot out of this conversation. I definitely did. If you want to connect with Erin, I've left all the ways to do so in the show notes below. And if you want to connect with us, the Plan Paradigm, we are also all the link, all the links again in the show notes below as well. So I hope you all have a fantastic rest of day and you follow the show so you can keep up to date with the latest episodes. Other than that, stay happy, eat plants, peace.